electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Welcome to Last Call. I'm Contessa Brewer in for Brian Sullivan tonight. Travel get in a nationwide nightmare for flyers just won't end. Could Canadian wildfire smoke actually make things worse? Apple now just the tiniest bite away from $3 trillion valuation. A top tech analyst says $4 trillion is next. He'll be here. A brawl for blockbuster supremacy. How IMAX may prove kingmaker in the fight between Mission Impossible and Oppenheimer, its CEO, joins us. And speaking of kings, 2023's EV car of the year is crowned, and nope, it's not a Tesla. Plus, only in Las Vegas, hefty heists in multiple Sin City casinos. You won't believe how the thieves got away. Even the Ocean's 11 crew would be impressed. We have that and much more. Last Call is up right now. Let's kick off with Bidenomics. It was the catchphrase of the day as President Biden gave a wide-ranging speech in Chicago earlier. CNBC's Emily Wilkins covered that, joins us now with more. So Bidenomics, Emily, what is it? Well, it is what Biden's latest pitch is in the run-up to 2024. You know, Biden's been trying to find new ways to tout his legislative wins, and his latest pitch is Bidenomics, focus on the middle class and the end of trickle-down spending. There are three fundamental changes that we decided to make with the help of Congress and been able to do it. First, making smart investments in America. Second, educating and empowering American workers to grow the middle class. And third, promoting competition to lower costs to help small businesses. Biden argues that he's given a boost to the middle class through new laws with additional funding for infrastructure, semiconductors, green energy. The difficulty for Biden is that most Americans either don't know about these laws or they haven't seen their impact. And that makes messaging and speeches like today's even more important for him. All those major legislations we pass, people go, that's great. But it takes time to get it out in the field. It takes time for them to see it. And I'm not here to declare victory on the economy. I'm here to say we have a plan that's turning things around incredibly quickly. We have more work to do. It will be tough for Biden to get additional bills passed in a divided government, but it sets up a platform for him ahead of 2024 of promoting middle-class Americans. Biden has continued to push for raising taxes on Americans making more than $400,000 a year and lowering costs through banning some non-compete clauses and tackling so-called junk fees. Biden's embrace of the economy is a vote of confidence from the administration that the economy's ability to avoid a painful recession, the risk that might not pay off, depending on what happens to the labor market between now and 2024. But it really seems, Emily, like this is it's a mission of PR that he needs to go out and sell how much he's done for the economy. Meanwhile, across the country, there are a lot of voters who are living in a cost of living crisis. And here the president gave the remarks in the middle of the workday. What else 
does he need to do? And, and what else are you seeing from, say, representatives in Congress, the, the Democrats who are out carrying the water for the Democratic Party, trying to go forward and bring this message to the people in their districts? I mean, Biden understands that inflation is a very difficult point from him. Democrats understand that inflation is a very difficult point from him. And that's why I think you have seen this consistent and focused message about the labor, about the economy, about the number of jobs that we have. Uh, the president is trying to kind of put a sunny spin on this, trying to point to the things that he has done. And to his credit, he has gotten things across the line. He's gotten them across the line in a bipartisan way. The question, of course, is that going to be enough when you are still seeing relative relatively high inflation. Emily, it's great to have you. Thank you. While the president embarks on a mission to overhaul the perceptions about the American economy, that cost of living crisis has hit home for a lot of Americans. And a new AP poll just released found only 34 percent, one in three Americans, approve of the way President Biden is handling the economy. That's actually lower than his overall approval rating of 41 percent. So where's the disconnect? Let's get to our panel. The Wall Street Journal chief economics comment commentator, Greg Ipp, and the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget President, Maya McGinnis, joins us. Thank you for being here on Last Call. Greg, let me start with you a little bit. You wrote about this a bit today. Why isn't the message from the president reaching the people who most need to hear it? I think that Biden's fundamental problem is that um, he's trying to defend his economic record, but he really has two different economic records. The first one, which is one you hear a lot about these days, is this industrial policy agenda of doing more infrastructure, more subsidizing manufacturing in America, more reshoring. That stuff pulls really well. People love to hear about like battery factories and semiconductor factories being made in the U.S., how he's being repaired. But as Emily was saying, the impact on their daily lives is not very large, and it's probably years away. The other part of the economic record is kind of the legacy of the big stimulus that he passed in 2021. And that had two effects. It gave us very tight labor markets, which is good, but it gave us inflation, or at least it contributed to inflation, which is bad. And unfortunately for Biden, the inflation thing is a very immediate, salient factor for most people. And that's how they're judging him on the economy. Maya, when we're talking about, I mean, I know you're going to come at this from the point of view of having responsible government spending here. Part of what the president is touting is a lot of government spending, spending on infrastructure, things that put people to work and repair what we have and make it easier for businesses to do business. But do you think that that is a message that gets lost on Americans who are looking at what it costs to go out to eat, how much it costs to fill up their tanks? Even if gas prices have come down, that's a sticky factor for a lot of Americans, especially in the summertime. Absolutely. I think I think there are two big themes that are missing from Bidenomics and uh, not ones the president will want to emphasize. And they are basically the persistence of inflation and the growing of the national debt. And so while he has been focusing on expanding the middle class and public investments and industrial policy for security reasons, there's a lot of things that that are defensible or desirable there, depending on one's perspective. It's not entirely clear whether the policies that have been put in place will be the best at achieving those, but you could again make that case. But what the White House has been trying to ignore, understandably, I think, is the fact that through spending an awful lot of money and through in particular borrowing that money, uh, the response to COVID, which was, was their response to COVID under President Biden, ended up kicking off inflation and then all the subsequent bills that they passed, with the, with the exception of the Inflation Reduction Act and the debt ceiling deal that they just passed, 
contributed to borrowing ex- by extreme amounts. You know, the, so this the, the pandemic spending that started when Donald Trump was still in the White House. And, and I think that what you're going to hear from Biden, we heard it today, that inflation is coming down, that 11 consecutive months of inflation slowing is the thing to look at. I just I spend a lot of time with people who I love in the middle of the country, and that's not the thing that they're talking about. In the big picture, they're concerned about government spending, but they're really concerned about how much money is leaving their bank accounts or their pocketbooks and what's coming back in. Whether you're Republican or Democrat, Greg, what's the winning message on the economy right now going into the, the, this fall? You know, unfortunately, I think it's somewhat out of Biden's hands because there's almost nothing that he can do in the short run to affect the inflation rate, which, as you correctly say, is on everybody's minds. Now, I think one of the reasons people are unhappy is that even if the inflation rate is 4% instead of 9%, that still means prices are going up 4% a year, which, by the way, is twice as fast as they were going up before the pandemic. Gasoline is not back down to $2 a gallon. It's yeah. still around three fifty a gallon. If you've had to book an airplane ticket for your summer vacation, those ticket prices look insane compared to what you were uh, used to before the pandemic. What can change this? Like I said, not a lot that Biden himself can change. I think there's a case to be made that we're still working our way through some of the supply disentanglements of the pandemic. And as those come undone, that could start to bring inflation down the next six months. A big part of this story is actually not in the hands of Joe Biden. It's in the hands of another guy, Jay Powell, who's also uh, out there talking this week. And his message is not a great one for Biden. His message is we need to keep interest rates high for a while longer because inflation is not coming down. And I think the worst case scenario for Biden, frankly, is that inflation doesn't come down until the Fed pushes interest rates up enough to really do some damage to the economy going right into next fall's election. Mile, what do you think? Do you think that there is a way that Joe Biden can highlight something that would coax American voters that the American economy is on the right path? I think it's really difficult for the White House to make a big difference here when it comes to inflation, and that is the thing that, that voters are most worried about. Um, so we have we have seen that um, the White House has been pushing in the wrong direction by borrowing more, but really the end, it's going to be up to what the Fed does. And there's a rock and a hard place here where if the Fed raises interest rates enough to clearly get on top of inflation, the likelihood of us going into recession increases dramatically. I, so neither of those are really desirable scenarios. We're in a tricky place where navigating our way out of year one isn't entirely up to the White House at all. But two, it's almost impossible to see something where you come out without the hardship of either inflation remaining too high or are going into at least a mild recession. Tired of fighting your kids to make their bed? Say hello to Betty's. The unique design lets your kids make their bed with just a zip. Our patented bedding includes everything you need, a fitted sheet, top sheet, and comforter in one seamless piece that zips together. Kids love the feeling of accomplishment when they can make their bed by themselves every day. Make your mornings easier and visit Bettys.com. That's B-E-D-D-Y-S.com. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. 
Time for tomorrow's news tonight. The stories you'll be talking about tomorrow morning. First up, it's been a long time since these words have come from my mouth. It's a busy evening for IPO pricing. Thrift store operator Savers Value Village pricing its IPO at $18 a share. That is higher than the expected range of $15 to $17. Bucks. We're still awaiting Kodiak Gas Services and Fidelis Insurance Holdings, all scheduled to go public tomorrow. In another healthy sign for IPOs, the Korean barbecue company Gen Restaurant Group popped 28% in its public debut. It comes just two weeks following the successful Kava IPO. Next up, chipmaker Micron, and take a guess at what's driving its latest results. Should we say this all at once? Artificial intelligence. Micron says demand for AI and memory chips are helping boost profits and outlook. It shares in the green after hours, and so far this year, they're up 38%. And finally, oh, the frustration in the skies. Airports across the U.S. are seeing a surge in delays and cancellations. So far today, thousands of flights affected. Horror stories abound on social media. Officials blame severe weather and a shortage of air traffic controllers for the headaches. It comes as wildfire smoke is plaguing much of the country. So are we looking at more trouble ahead of the holiday weekend? Let's get to the guy who knows all of this so well. CNBC's Phil LeBeau joins us. You look at, you know, the flight-aware maps that show the problems, and then what your friends are tweeting about how long they're on hold with the airlines waiting for a flight change. Phil, give me a sense of what's happening and really who is to blame. Uh, There's a lot of blame to go around. It's not just the airlines. It's not just the air traffic control situation. If you'd like some good news, the good news is that we saw the number of cancellations and delays today come down relative to what we saw earlier this week. And take a look at the numbers. It was ugly on Sunday and Monday, both in terms of delays as well as cancellations. United and JetBlue really took the brunt of this, but all airlines were impacted because of storms primarily in the northeast, in the New York area, as well as down in the Florida area. And as these cancellations and delays have come down a little bit, United just put out a note just a few minutes ago saying it believes it is on target to restore operations ahead of the holiday weekend. That's the good news. The bad news is that this is a situation that could pop up if we get more storms. And, of course, we have the air traffic controller situation, which is something that United CEO talked about the other day. He took a shot at the uh, the FAA and the DOT saying, look, we need to have more air traffic controllers. The staffing is not where it needs to be. That's not going to change anytime soon, Contessa. And you have to ask yourself, does any of this matter to investors? Really? Right now it doesn't. Because if you take a look at Delta, United, American, All of these stocks are at 52-week highs. They're moving higher because investors realize they're going to be putting out new guidance for Q2. We saw that with Delta yesterday. Likely we'll see it with American and United. We'll find out in the next few weeks. Business is going gangbusters right now for these guys, despite the problems with the delays and the cancellations. And as somebody who was in Atlanta yesterday for Delta, had a flight canceled last night, had to rebook on another airline, I saw a lot of people who were frustrated in the Atlanta airport. And Atlanta's not even in the heart of the cancellations. That's in New York. So fingers crossed. It's going to be a busy week for the 4th of July. Fingers crossed that things go relatively smoothly. You, you got to wonder whether the passengers who get stuck are like, you know what? I'm selling my airline stock. Forget it. I don't want to own this company anymore. Let me ask you, <laughs> let me ask you about the wildfire smoke. 
because I know it was in Milwaukee and Chicago and Pittsburgh, yeah. and now it's coming back to New York City again, and it was really, yeah, it was it was really noticeable. Will that ground flights the way that it did the last time? Are we expecting to see New York, which is already a problem center for these sure. air, air? Go ahead. No way of knowing right now. I mean, at this point, when I've talked with people with the FAA, they, they, their fingers are crossed that so far they haven't had to have slow down flights or do ground stops, which we saw three, four weeks ago when it was mm -hmm. really bad in New York City and in Philadelphia. But you know how this goes, Contessa. I mean, who knows which way the wind blows with this smoke, and then all of a sudden you have a city that's socked in, and they've got to draw down flights for an hour, two hours, for however long. So I wish I could tell you, oh, it's not going to be as bad as three or four weeks ago. But the truth is nobody knows for sure. You know who knows? The meteorologists, because they are always right. Oh, Phil absolutely. <laughs> Phil LeBeau. Thank you, sir. Still ahead, Apple just a morsel away from a $3 trillion valuation. And a top tech analyst says $4 trillion won't be far behind. He joins us next. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Two top CEOs testified in a major courtroom battle in San Francisco today. Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella and Activision CEO Bobby Kotick took to the stand as the Federal Trade Commission challenges the company's nearly $69 billion merger. Now, the stakes are high. Microsoft has until July 18th to try and close its proposed acquisition. If not, the company has to pay a $3 billion breakup fee to Activision or maybe renegotiate the terms. CNBC's Steve Kovac joins us now with more on this legal showdown. Okay, what happened, Steve? Yeah, Contessa, well, this was the big one with Nadella and Kodak testifying to defend that $69 billion deal. And the judge's decision here will likely seal the fate of the transaction with both Microsoft and Activision saying they may abandon it if the judge grants the FTC's request for that preliminary injunction blocking it. Now, for Nadella's testimony today, the FTC side attempting to show Microsoft has plans to be a dominant player in cloud gaming, pointing to comments he made on previous earnings calls and internal memos. In those comments, Adela boasted about market share gains Xbox has made in the U.S., Canada, and Europe. FTC also showing an email where Nadella said he wanted to, quote, use every opportunity to make cloud streaming more mainstream, adding it's best for Microsoft in the long run. Those two examples back up FTC's arguments. Microsoft is a strong competitor to PlayStation and plans to turn cloud gaming into the next dominant platform. Microsoft's side, though, asked Nadella about exclusive games, something Nadella said he was against but has to do with Xbox in order to stay competitive with market 
market leaders, Sony and Nintendo. Nadella saying of the fight over exclusives for each platform, quote, I have no love for that world. And if it were up to him, he said he'd eliminate exclusives on consoles altogether. Now, Nadella committing under oath to keep Activision's biggest game, Call of Duty, on PlayStation platforms. Also, Kodak testifying earlier in the day, saying he doesn't believe cloud gaming is a good option for Activision games. Also said he regretted not launching Call of Duty on Nintendo's Switch console, adding it sold far better than he thought it would. Now, tomorrow's the final day in this hearing, and the judge will then decide whether or not to grant the FTC's request for the injunction blocking the deal. The clock is ticking, though. Like you said, Contessa, it has to close by July 18th. How much appetite, Steve, do you think that Microsoft has to keep pursuing this deal? Even though it looks like it's dead and people have said it's dead like for the last couple of months, Contessa, they're still fighting it. They're still fighting it here in the U.S. They really do believe they have a strong case with this federal judge and that they can win the case against the FTC. The big question, Contessa, is regulators in the U.K. who already rejected the deal. So even if they win this one, Contessa, they still have to wrangle with the U.K. And the timeline just doesn't add up because they have till July 18th and the U.K. battle is expected to go through August. All right, Steve, thank you. Nice to see you. From Microsoft to Apple now, as the biggest company on the planet is nearing a major milestone. Today, Apple was on the cusp of closing with a $3 trillion market cap for the first time ever. Now, we watched something similar happen in intraday trading in January, but the stock couldn't quite close the deal, so to speak. This is a massive milestone, of course, and it affects most investors since you likely have Apple in your 401k or your pension investments. And it has an outsized impact on the S&P 500, accounting for a 7.6% of the index. That's the largest for any single company in the index with the data going back to 1980. For more on Apple's record run, let's bring in Wedbush Securities Managing Director and Senior Equity Research Analyst, Dan Ives, he just put out a note saying the stock could hit $4 trillion. And Clio Capital Managing Director, Sarah Kuntz. It's good to see both of you. Dan, what's the fuel in the tank for Apple to get from $3 trillion to $4 trillion? I almost said billion dollars, but now we've got to move on to something else. Yeah, and I think it yeah. just be, it's another trophy case moment for Cook and Cupertino. It's because of the golden install base. They have an install base that no one else has and the street continues to underestimate what this install base and what this iPhone 15, I'll call it a mini super cycle as it plays out. Tomorrow, I think we hit $3 trillion, But ultimately, this is just a step up to what I view as a $4 trillion mark cap by 2025. Okay, so we were just showing there the extended trading and how it's inching up a little bit more. It's up, you know, uh, $0.30 cents in after hours trading here at one eighty nine fifty five. Uh, I, I see that 190 is sort of the magic number, depending on how many outstanding shares there are and, and all of that. Sarah, is this just symbolic? Does it matter if it's three trillion or 3.5 trillion or, or like what's the symbolism of this milestone? People love a milestone, and I think we're about to get a big one. I remember a few years ago when being a trillion-dollar company felt like a big deal, and now that's kind 
old news. So yeah, we're going to breach this milestone. And you know, the reality is that while Apple is a great company, there's not a ton of fundamentals driving this right now. And so it's an interesting time to see, you know, will people be getting out once they cross that three trillion threshold before the Vision Pro is introduced, before they have to grapple with, hey, does anyone actually want this VR? And I don't think we have an answer to that yet. Do you think it's under-owned, Apple? At this it's point? still, I mean, look, go back to earlier this year. The bears thought this was going to be a two trillion or lower. And now we're sitting here on the doorstep of three trillion. I think the reason the bears are in hibernation mode is because you have 250 million of 1.2 billion iPhones that haven't upgraded in four years. You combine that with services, which we view as 1.3, 1.4 trillion. And this is all the drum roll to what ultimately is going to be the next step, because that's why Cook. He's playing chess. Others are playing checkers in terms of AI. I think AI ultimately could add another $800 billion to trillion dollars of valuation to the Apple Store. Because of services? Because of like, in, in, in what way? In terms of the App Store. Yeah. And that's why when it came to Vision Pro, I think that, and, and me and you talked about that, that was just the first step to what's really going to be a broader ecosystem that Cupertino continues to sell into eventually a car 2026. Uh, Sarah, are you watching at all? I mean, if there's all of these people who haven't upgraded their iPhones in four years, one, why haven't they? Is it money? And by the way, I still own an iPhone 10. And, and two, is looming recession, the cost of living crisis, I, I've mentioned it several times today, could that be actually uh, interrupt Dan's thesis about everybody moving forward to the 14 or the 15? You know, I think that it's great that the phones work well enough that people aren't forced to get a new one every year anymore. It's great that they're not breaking, you know, that, that they're sticking around. And, and, you know, anecdotally, that might indicate that theft is lower. People aren't replacing. In terms of affordability, you know, brands like T-Mobile make it pretty cheap. They add on, you know, $30, $40 to your bill every month. They give you a few hundred dollars, you know, when you trade it in as a credit. So, you know, I think that the upgrades are affordable for most people. It's just that if it's not broke, why spend $1,000 to replace it? Uh, Dan, we showed uh, on screen here some of the other companies that are in the stratosphere in relation to Apple. What other company do you think that we could see hit a $3 trillion valuation? I think by the end of this year and potentially by early next year, it's Nadella and Redmond. I think it's Microsoft because they essentially, in AI, I mean, it's really them and NVIDIA, top of the mountain. And then you look at the cloud story, this story is still just in the middle innings of playing out, which is why we believe Microsoft will join Apple in that exclusive $3 trillion club. Sarah, great to see you. Thank you for being here. Dan, thank you for coming in. By the way, dressed so conservatively compared to the usually fashion-forward, colorful outfits we get. But again, this is all just a precursor to Apple hitting $3 trillion tomorrow, and then I'll go a little more, you know, a little oh, more I see. maybe Oh, colorful. I see. All right. I love the strategy there. Very businessy. Thank you. It's time now for our Quicker Than the Ticker, all the news that mattered in the world of business and beyond. Let's put 60 seconds on the clock. A Delta plane was forced to land in Charlotte, North Carolina today without its nose gear, a.k.a. the front wheels. Officials called it a malfunction. You think? Passengers called the landing perfect. Construction has finished on the world's biggest cruise ship. Royal Caribbean's Icon of the Seas will offer the world's largest water park at sea. The first passengers embark in January. Caught on camera, 
Some yahoo carving his name and that of his girlfriend into the walls of Rome's ancient Colosseum because nothing says true love like defacing antiquities. The punishment, 25,000 bucks in fines. In the old days, they would have just thrown him to the lions. Need a hand? Japanese researchers developed Jazai Arms, a robotic device you wear with four additional arms and a variety of hand styles. Three-pronged claw, anyone? You might also need more muscles because it weighs almost 31 pounds. A caged chimpanzee was rescued from a research lab and watched the reaction seeing the sky for the first time in 28 years. It also, it just, it nearly makes me want to weep to see that. Amazing. Still ahead, crowning the summer's box office king, how IMAX may decide the fate of Mission Impossible versus Oppenheimer. Its CEO is here next. Welcome back. Who's on our last call watch list? Anheuser-Busch. Its CEO getting grilled about the Bud Light boycott sparked by its partnership with a trans influencer in April. During a CBS interview, Brendan Whitworth was repeatedly asked whether the promotion was a mistake. Well, he dodged any specific answer to the question. Bud Light sales are down about 30% compared to last year. AB InBev stock has slid 16% since the backlash began. To try to reverse the sales slump, Bud Light is offering July 4th holiday rebates of up to 15 bucks for a 15-pack of beer. So, you know, nearly free. Next up, Pfizer. Its share is not just at a fresh 52-week low. They're now at their lowest level since last April of 2021. Pfizer halted development of an obesity drug over safety concerns earlier this week. The stock's still suffering. Pfizer has dropped about 29% so far in 2023. And finally, General Electric. Its shares scored their highest close since January of 2018. The stock is on a tear this year, now up more than 60%. Investors have been loving its push to become a pure play aerospace company, along with cost reductions and paying down debt. As we head into a major holiday weekend this summer, we're watching Hollywood's hopes for a summer box office comeback. And it's been a bit of a choppy start so far. The industry is hoping to turn a corner this weekend with Disney's Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. Soon after, Paramount's Mission Impossible 7 will be out July 12th. Then July 21st comes Warner Brothers' Barbie and Universal's Oppenheimer, which we should note is part of our parent company. MI7 and Oppenheimer both have exclusive IMAX runs, but that comes with its own drama. Tom Cruise was reportedly, quote, pretty pissed that the $300 million MI7 will only get a one-week run in IMAX. Then it has to move over to make way for Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer. However, now Cruise may be singing a bit of a different tune. Joining me now on this is the guy behind those massive film decisions, IMAX CEO Richard Gelfond. Richard, it's good to talk to you. Nice to be here, Contessa. Thanks. So he's so furious that he's talking about it to everybody that he only gets one week. Have you talked to Tom Cruise about this? I have talked to him probably several weeks ago. And um, he, 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 he's calmed down a lot. And in fact, today he went to a theater in London and he posed in front of an Oppenheimer poster and a Barbie poster. And he and I texted back and forth. And he said, you know, he wants what's good for all theaters. He's rooting for everybody. 
give me a sense here about why you made the decision just to have Tom Cruise for a week when Oppenheimer was going to be such a longer run, and especially after the performance that we saw over Memorial Day weekend with the Cruise movie and, and, and Maverick. Yeah, it's a pretty simple explanation, which is that Oppenheimer dated about a year ago or more than a year ago on those dates. And because of the pandemic, um, Mission Impossible 7 um, moved around a bit. So they didn't pick their date until after we had committed to Oppenheimer. And uh, Paramount chose a date that only allowed for IMAX to play uh, for one week. So, um, you know, it was just, it, it certainly had nothing to do um, with our feelings towards Tom, and we think MI7 is going to be huge. Richard, I, I'm just curious. I, I'm watching the prices of the movies. In New York City, where I live, an IMAX ticket goes for 25 bucks. The price of a regular movie ticket, about $18. When we're looking at people you know, crunching the dollars and saving their pennies when it comes to the grocery store and fast casual restaurants. Are you seeing at all consumers pulling back on IMAX spending because it's more expensive? And what do you think is coming down the pike this summer? Um, not at all, Contessa. As a matter of fact, our first quarter was our best box office quarter ever. IMAX box office domestically, um, our market share has gone up 50% since before the pandemic and globally around 40%. Um, what I see happening is a shift to premium, not only in movie going, but in a lot of things. So Taylor Swift's concerts, recent one, as you know, is about to become the biggest of all time with tickets up to $1,000. Uh, sports tickets are going more. I think what happened after the pandemic is people want the best experiences and they're willing to pay for them. And I think IMAX fits in that category. And, you know, the pre-sales are extremely strong um, for Oppenheimer. Um, you know, I've seen lots of sellouts for the opening weekend. So, you know, I think if people want a premium experience, they're willing to pay do, for it. Do you think that's here to stay or was that I mean, is this still part of pent up demand for something amazing to do? Um, I don't know. I think, you know, there's always a pop at the beginning, but it appears to have staying power. And IMAX is in 90 countries. So it's not just a U.S. phenomenon. This trend to premium seems to be global. And I think especially because now with streaming, people could sit in their living rooms and watch movies. And I think if they go out, they don't want a small screen or kind of a mediocre experience. They want the best on the planet. And that's IMAX. Uh, we have been watching the progress of the writer's strike uh, in Hollywood, and now there's the prospect for an actor's strike. The Writers Guild hasn't reached a deal. How are you seeing this play out for IMAX? We're very much a spectator to this, and we really hope that a settlement is reached both with the actors and the writers. Um, I think as long as it settles you know, in the next couple of months, I don't think it's going to have a major impact. 2023, the slate is already locked, so it's not going to have an effect on movies this year. And as long as it gets settled, you know, in the next few months, I don't think it'll have an effect on 2024. If it runs on much longer, then I think you have to look at which movies are in the can and which still have to be filmed and, you know, when that all comes back to normal. Richard Gelfand, great to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you.
Coming up, 2023's EV car of the year is revealed, and Elon Musk probably isn't too happy about it. Stay with us. Welcome back. Car and Drivers released its third annual EV of the Year award, and the results might surprise you. It's not a Tesla. Tesla models weren't even in the running this year. The competition only tests new or significantly updated vehicles. And this year's winner is the 2023 Hyundai Ioniq 6, putting Hyundai at the top of the list for the second year in a row. So what sets the Ioniq 6 apart from the rest? Joining me now with details, Car and Drivers Editor-in-Chief, Tony Quiroga. Tony, good to see you today. Uh, thanks for having me, Contessa. All right. Well, so t- the award in twice in consecutive years, it's a big deal for them. What did set it apart? Um, affordability is a big part of what we look at. We look at value. Um, we look at advancing technology. Uh, we look at mission fulfillment. And we look at cars that are fun to drive. And the Ionic 6 um, really nailed all of those elements. Um, there's a model that costs around $45,000 that has an EPA range of 361 miles. Um, it's a fantastic car to drive. Um, even though sedans are sort of out of fashion, it's a beautiful sedan. And beautiful things and cool-looking things really never go out of fashion. And as we see it, it's sort of a real, real competitor to the Tesla Model 3. What did, or, or I should say, how did the model change from when it won last year? So the Hyundai Ioniq 5 is what won last year. That's a boxy sort of SUV, a two-box shape hatchback. Um, But it shares a lot with the Ioniq 6. Um, Battery is shared. uh, The motors are shared. But what you get in the Ioniq 6 is um, a slightly more aerodynamic shape that then boosts things like range. And they both share the incredible 800-volt uh, charging system that these cars have uh, that allows you to DC charge very quickly. Um, in our testing, we um, got it to go from 10% charge to 90% charge in about 27 minutes. Wow. Uh, you know, do you think that Hyundai has its work cut out for it in terms of marketing its EV muscle? After all, when we talk about EVs, it's still Tesla's top of mind. It is, but there are so many new models coming out to challenge Tesla. And Tesla's lineup, as we noticed, you know, we invite back uh, significantly changed or new models. And this is the first year that we didn't invite back, we didn't have a Tesla to test Hmm. uh, because they didn't really significantly change anything in their lineup. So the, what they call the legacy automakers, the, um, the automakers who are making IC engine cars and are switching to electric, they all are coming out with a lot of product, and it's really seems like it's anybody's game. I also just wanted to mention that the Genesis electrified GV70 and the Kia EV6 GT also in the running got, what, what is it, honorable mentions or second and third place? How do you do that? Yeah, there, it was, uh, we don't really reveal uh, the finishing order, but uh, they were definitely at the top of the list. Uh, the GV70 is a fantastic uh, converted GV70. Uh, Genesis also makes a GV70 uh, powered by a gasoline yeah. engine. Then they convert it to battery power, and it works brilliantly. They do the same thing with their G80 model. And um, Kia with the EV6 GT, we love cars at Car and Driver. We yeah. love driving. The drive is really important to us. That thing is a rocket ship. It, it hits 60 in 3.1 seconds in our test. 
testing. And it's just as much fun to drive as some sports cars and a lot quicker. You, than you may just end up in an ad just for that little blip right there. Tony, thank you for your time. <laughs> Appreciate it. From EVs to V8s, you know what happened 70 years ago tonight? Chevy workers in Flint, Michigan, began assembling an American icon, the Corvette. And watch this. I mean, is that a gorgeous car? 300 were made in 1953, price tag about $3,500. It could go from zero to 60 in oh, 11 or 12 seconds, really average speed at the time. But then the Corvette became the roaring roadster in, the, in 1955 when Chevy equipped it with a powerful V8 engine. The Corvette has since become one of the most popular sports cars on the market. In fact, Chevy sold more than 34,000 Corvettes last year. Porsche sold about 10,000 911s during the same period. Coming up, a bold series of casino heists in Vegas that sound like a sequel to Ocean's Eleven. The unbelievable investigation underway. Next. Welcome back to Last Call. It is a modern-day casino heist. Not a holdup at the cashier's cage, but sophisticated scams targeting employees who work inside. Multiple casinos hit, and police are investigating whether the scam crosses state lines. We've learned Circa Casino in downtown Las Vegas on Fremont Street was hit. More than a million dollars taken when a con artist impersonated one of the owners on the phone and convinced an employee to walk out with the money. It wasn't the only casino where employees got duped. Las Vegas police have warned other casinos that the scam works. It has reportedly been successful in some half dozen different casinos. Scott Robin is known for his Vital Vegas blog, has been reporting on this story. Scott, the biggest casinos on the Las Vegas Strip, Caesars and MGM, both told me they were not victims. Who was? Explain who, what you've learned about the heist and how they work. Yeah, it's it's all very strange and wonderful, um, maybe not for the casinos, but as an observer of things that are happening, it's it's a peculiar situation because, as you said, it's not a, a traditional robbery where, where someone will walk up to a cage and point a gun. Um, the employees actually delivered the money to the bad guys. Um, the I cannot say the name of the casinos. The the I have been sworn to secrecy on on the specific ones. But my understanding is, uh, and this really hasn't been confirmed or, or reported wi- widely, that it was uh, five Las Vegas casinos, one in Mesquite, um, and the folks involved think that there was another case of this in Colorado. Um, and, and, and investigators Vegas, are trying to connect yes. the dots now, right? So, and and I, from my reporting, I've heard that the schemes run from everything that the owner's been kidnapped and you've got to go and give this money to the lawyer to pay that off to. We didn't pay our fire suppression bill and the fire department is going to show up tomorrow and shut us down unless you get this money over to the lawyer really quick. And the lawyer is, you know, some, some like what, a dupe? Like somebody who's a mule? What, who is the yeah, guy? Mule is definitely the perfect word for that in this situation. Um, yes, and the authorities have been trying to piece this together for several months. Uh, our, our local police uh, communicated that this has been going on in Las Vegas for at least five months. None of the the other uh, casinos have, it, it, they haven't been the center of the story because Circa is the first case where someone was arrested. So that's the difference, and that's why Circa is on the 
on the radar now and has sparked uh, the rest of the story. It's also that that one of the owners here, Circa's owner, Derek Stevens, a co-owner, tweeted about it and and basically confirmed that it happened. Normally, casinos don't want to talk about how much they lose in theft because it's not good business. They don't want other thieves to mimic it and copy it. But this apparently is a successful scam and has been going on. They call it social engineering. What's your sense of the way that the security protocols for these casinos failed in that an employee was able to be emotionally convinced that the the, the procedures for handling money should be ignored. Yeah, as you know, casinos have some of the most sophisticated security systems in the world because they have the most cash on hand. Uh, But the weak link in any scam, any business is always gonna be human beings. Um, it's a little bit like when you get an email and it says click on a click on a file and now you're in a company system. This kind of hacking and scamming uh, is becoming much more prevalent, uh, largely because of technology. And in this case, you know, th- these are not the, the, the criminals have not infiltrated the company. Uh, these folks are of a specific gender. They're female. Uh, the women in these cages who are and they're uh, fairly high level because mm. you can't walk out of a casino unless you're a high level person, uh, but it's it's people who are, they wanna help. So the criminals are actually taking advantage of their uh, wanting to help their employer, their boss, yeah. they're hearing and, and this Scott, from the, the owner. Because, the connecting know. of those dots happening as we speak, the investigators looking to see if there are more cases of this ongoing. Thank you for joining us, Scott Robin. And on that note, that's your last call for tonight. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Hope you have a great one. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.